Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you have done in spite of who we are and what we have done. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for being our King. Thank you for being the Lord of the universe and thank you for being the hope of the world. Thank you for sending your own Son, your one and only Son, Jesus. Thank you that he came to be Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for grace and mercy and hope and joy and peace and love that all come to us from heaven to earth through Jesus. May we still be amazed at the incarnation that unlike any other religion, unlike any other philosophy, that we don't come to God, but that God has come to us. Thank you. And now as we open your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would have your way in our hearts, pointing us to your Son so that your people believe on Jesus and trust in Jesus as their hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. We were able to do this morning what I've been doing since September, and that is sing Christmas music. So welcome this morning. So glad to see you. Good to have guests with us today. We would love to be able to meet you in our welcome center on the other side of our lobby following the service. We have a special gift there for you, and I hope and pray you receive a warm welcome here at Bethel today. Also, you'll see down front here the communion table, which means we will conclude our morning service with communion. And so if you made your way into this room without picking up a communion cup from out in the lobby, feel free at this time to go ahead and make your way there, and you won't miss out on it anything because I have a couple more things to say here if I can remember what they are. So this morning we are kicking off our Advent series. Advent means coming and in the Advent series we are focusing not only on the first coming of Jesus but the second coming of Jesus. And so it is our hope and prayer that as your pastors over these next four weeks that God will use these Bible texts that point us to Jesus to grow your anticipation of your preparation for the celebration of Christmas. All of that and anticipation of Jesus coming again. You do believe Jesus is coming again, right? Yes. Amen. He came once. He came to be the sacrifice for our sins. And he will come again to rule and reign over this universe, in this universe. And that is our hope. Jesus is the light of the world. And that is what we've entitled our four weeks Advent series this year. It all begins not in the New Testament with a birth, but in the Old Testament with a promise. So let's pick up on one of those promises. If you have a Bible with you, I would ask you to open that Bible to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. So Micah, you go to the end of the Old Testament, you go back seven books, and you're going to find Micah. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. It's page 926 in that copy of the church Bible. 
Micah, chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 5. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is our God, and this is his word. Amen? Amen. The story of Christmas is birthed in a story of chaos and crisis. In fact, the story of our lives is comprised by a series of crisis points, and our response to those crisis, crisis points are life-defining moments. I remember in 1989 when I finally fully surrendered my life to God's call upon my life to be a pastor. I remember the first rehearsal of the college music team Joanna and I were a part of. That was a defining moment for me, a crisis point for her. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> I remember the day our oldest daughter was born blue with an initial APGAR score of two because the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck twice. I remember our family's car accident in September of 2006 and the death of my mother-in-law in March of 2011. That's my short crisis list. We all have a list. Health crises, financial crises, family crises, career crises, but they are not wasted crises. Because it's in and through these crises that God grows our hope in Jesus. And that isn't just our story, that's the Christmas story. Because the birth of Jesus grows out of a national crisis to show us that Jesus is our only hope. It's in the darkness of crisis that the light of the world arrives. It's into the promise of defeat that the conqueror comes. It's from the despair of an impending tragedy that the hope of the world rises. And that's why when Matthew gives us his account of what we refer to as the Christmas story with the wise men, when that group of wise men arrives in Jerusalem asking where they can find the one who has been born king of the Jews, King Herod goes to the Jewish religious leaders for the answer. And here's what those religious leaders say in Matthew 2. They say that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, this prophet, this little prophet Micah. And Micah 5 that's where they quote from when they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there is hope for God's people. 
But it isn't in the absence of crisis. It's in the one who enters into those crises with us and for us, the one who conquers our fears and dispels our doubts. That's part to the, uh, of the backstory to Christmas, and it's the part that we discover through a prophet named Micah. Now, it's important to remember at this period of Bible history that God's people did not have the same Bible that we are holding in our hands this morning. They had certain portions of Scripture, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. But in those days, God led His people through, through the ministry of prophets. God would speak to the prophet who in turn would then speak God's words to God's people. And Micah is one of those prophets. He's from a little town that you've probably never heard of. He's from Moresheth. And he ministers during a time in which Israel is a divided nation. The northern kingdom is named Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And Jerusalem and Bethlehem are in that southern kingdom. And that's where Micah ministers. Micah is to Old Testament prophets what Marty Patton was to Major League Baseball. Marty Patton was a pitcher for my hometown team, the Kansas City Royals. And one night before one of their games, my youngest brother and I were out hanging around the dugout. Now, we didn't do that often, but back in those days, there wasn't much security. And so, and so fans could arrive before the game, and they could get all the way down to just behind the dugout. And so while we were there looking for autographs, Marty Patton struck up a conversation with my youngest brother and I. And as that conversation was winding down, he handed us two official American League baseballs. I would show it to you this morning, one of those to you this morning, but instead we took it home and used it for pickup games in the backyard. <laughs> but because of this, Marty Patton became one of our favorite baseball players. But when Marty Patton passed away in 2016, most of the world didn't even notice. He never made it big. That's Micah. He isn't one of the well-known prophets like, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, but that doesn't mean his ministry didn't make a difference or didn't have an impact because if we do a little digging, we discover that in Jeremiah chapter 26, Micah's message made an impact on a Jewish king named Hezekiah, and that's significant. That through the faithful ministry of a little-known, little-town prophet, God changed not only the course of an entire nation, but the world. You see, the story of Christmas is all about God using ordinary people like Micah in extraordinary ways. It's been true in my life. Each time I stand behind this pulpit, you need to know that God has used a lot of people to get me here. They are nameless, faceless, ordinary people to you, but not to God or to me. There's Eva in Georgia. They were my first and second grade Sunday school teachers. There's Daryl and Kathy and Herschel and Peggy. They were my youth leaders. There were lots of people in that small church in southern Missouri, and there were lots of people in several churches in Iowa, 
There were lots of people in our last church in southern Illinois, and there are lots of people here that God is using in extraordinary ways to mold me and shape me into the man and pastor he wants me to be. That's how God works, using ordinary people in extraordinary ways, people who embody the truth of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. That's the only reason I can ever be here. Why? Why would God choose to do things that way? Using ordinary people in extraordinary ways so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God specializes in using ordinary people in extraordinary ways. People like Micah who on earth may never see the full fruit of their labor. Micah never sees the fulfillment to his prophecy here. He's writing this 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Here's here's something for us then. Don't measure success in terms of results that you can see. Measure success in terms of faithfulness by being and doing what God has called you to be and do. Parents, You may never see the full fruit of your labor with your children. School teachers, you may wonder if your teaching is making a lick of difference. Husband or wife, you may doubt that your faith in Jesus is impacting your spouse who doesn't believe on Jesus. But just keep being faithful even when it appears to be fruitless because Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. There is coming a day when the full fruit of our labor and our work and our faithfulness will be revealed to the universe. I mean, even through, even though Micah, a little known prophet, doesn't see the fulfillment of his prophecy, God uses him in a big time way. When he focuses our attention on a little town just three miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's Bethlehem. Now, how many of you in this room have heard of Bethlehem? All right, that's 75% of you. The other 25% are either asleep or you're lying. (laughs) We know Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem, though, not because of its size. At this time, only 500 people live there. We know Bethlehem because of its history. Several centuries before Micah writes, there was a a little shepherd boy who watched sheep on the hillsides of Bethlehem. His name? David. But Bethlehem doesn't just have a storied history because of David. It has a sullied and stained history because of people like Naomi. Remember Naomi? Naomi and her husband and her two sons lived in Bethlehem, but during a famine, they make their way to Moab looking for food. And while they are there in Moab, Naomi's husband and two sons tragically die. 
And when she returns to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, Naomi publicly expresses her disappointment in and displeasure with God. She says, call me bitter because I'm not happy. It's part of Bethlehem's history. And then there is a shocking story back in Judges chapter 19 where a group of men in Bethlehem ravaged a young woman until she was dead. Bethlehem has experienced its share of tragedy. Now perhaps your life, your history, mirrors the kinds of tragedy experienced in Bethlehem. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've suffered at the hands of an abuser. Maybe you've even become bitter against God like Naomi. And Micah wants you to know that if God can rewrite the history of Bethlehem, then he can rewrite your history. Because as a child of God, your history fits into the promise of Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. You believe that? Even your history, all of it. Every moment of it, the pain, the hurt, the bad. God can rewrite that history for those who are called according to his purpose, working in all that to work all, out all that for our good. Our God can bring triumph out of tragedy. He can overturn that painful past it's what he does in rewriting the sullied and stained history of little Bethlehem. But he's going to do it in a surprising way. He's going to do that through a national crisis. Do you get what Micah is saying here? Because it isn't a pretty picture that he is initially painting here. Micah is prophesying doomsday for Judah, for Bethlehem. He is prophesying that the Assyrian army will swoop in and lay siege to Judah, including Bethlehem. And although Judah's king, Hezekiah, is a godly king, he is going to be backhanded by the ungodly Assyrian king, Sennacherib. It will be like 9-11 was here in America. You remember how you felt that day? Now imagine that you knew that was coming, but there's nothing you or anyone else could do to stop it. That's Bethlehem here, because God is behind this. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. Notice verse 3. Because God's people are living in rebellion against him, God is going to give them up. He's going to give them over to the Assyrians. He's going to use those Assyrians to bring judgment on his own people. And in doing so, God is going to do something better and bigger than we ever dreamed or imagined. He is going to set the stage for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of the world, who will rise from the ashes of death and defeat and destruction to save and secure his people, not just now, but forever. He will be their only hope. The only place they'll learn that is in the midst of of defeat and destruction. 
You see, there are two reasons why God places us in situations like this, like the Jews are facing here. Situations that are beyond us, situations that are too big for us, situations over which we have no control. Two reasons, God's, two reasons God places us in those situations. One, so that we feel our vulnerability. Micah wants God's people to feel the heat of what's coming. You know, sometimes we can get pretty full of ourselves. Sometimes I can get pretty full of myself, and I think, you know, I got this. I can handle this. I'm enough for this. And then I get on an airplane. And uh, you ever been on an airplane that experienced significant turbulence? You're traveling in a tin can five miles above the earth's surface. It's 600 miles per hour. And when that turbulence hits, I have never heard anyone in that plane or seen anyone in that plane stand up and say, it's okay, I've got this. I'm enough for this. No. But in that moment, in that turbulence, we feel our vulnerability. We have no control. We are at the mercy of the winds and the atmosphere. And in those moments, we feel what James writes about in James chapter 4, that our lives are like a vapor because we are weak and small and fragile creatures. And that's why, secondly, God places us in situations that are beyond us to show us not only our vulnerability, but our need for Him. Micah's question to God's people here is this. People of Judah, where are you going to turn? The Assyrians are coming and King Hezekiah won't be able to protect you. So where are you going to go for safety? Where are you going to hang your hope? And then Micah answers that question by pointing to the coming Messiah, to Jesus, to the ruler of Israel, only He can provide real safety and security for His people forever because he, there's coming a day when He won't just be great in the eyes of His people. He'll be great in the eyes of all people to the ends of the earth. He will be our deliverer. Our only deliverer. No one else can save us. No king. No boss. No bank account. It's only one deliverer, Micah is saying. And he's coming, but he won't come from where we expect. He won't come from the capital city of Jerusalem, a big place full of important people. He will come from Bethlehem because God is the God of little places and ordinary people. It's verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler, who will be God's king. God's king. He will come from God and he will rule for God to deliver the people of God. Now, if you would, would have been a Jew reading this for the very first time, your mind would go back to another time and another place and another deliverer when God's people faced another crisis. 
when they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And for 400 years, God was silent when his people cried out for deliverance. Not because he doesn't care, not because he wasn't there, but because he was setting the stage to do what only he could do. And at the end of those 400 years, out of a nowhere forgotten place on the backside of a desert, God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Now get this, because it isn't a coincidence. After the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, there will be another 400 years when God is silent, just like he was during the 400 years his people were slaves in Egypt. But then after these 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments, out of a nowhere place called Bethlehem, God will raise up another deliverer, the deliverer. And as we learn in Matthew chapter 1, his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Micah is saying, hey, Jews, When you see Bethlehem lying in ashes, all hope may seem lost. But from those smoldering ashes, God is going to raise up a king, an eternal king, an ancient of days kind of king with no beginning and no end, the Alpha and Omega whose reign will never end. Out of a crisis, God will bring peace. Out of a tragedy, God will triumph. Out of death, God will bring life. And why will he do it this way? So that we know it's all him. So that we glory and hope only in him. We don't read this and say, well, of course it's Bethlehem. What a place. What a history. No, it's lying in ashes. All we can say is, if anything good is going to come from smoldering Bethlehem, God's going to have to do it. He's going to have to rewrite its history. The God who gives his people up will take his people back. And how will he do it? Verse 3. When she who is in labor has given birth, that's Mary. And her son is born, that's Jesus, in Bethlehem. God is opening his strong arms of grace to bring and welcome his people back to himself because Jesus will be not just God's king, but God's shepherd. He will rule over God's people, not like Stalin did in Russia with an iron fist and an iron curtain but as the Psalm 23 kind of shepherd. He will rule over us by leading us out to green pastures and beside still waters, by walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we will fear no evil, by preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies and ensuring that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives so that in the end we will dwell with him in the safety of his house forever. And how will the good shepherd win that eternal safety for his people? It's what he himself tells us in John chapter 10. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He will be beaten and mocked and spat upon and humiliated. His hands and feet will be nailed to a cross until he's dead. But he will not stay dead. He will rise again from the ashes of defeat. He will stand as conqueror over the enemies of his people. Sin and death and the devil. And then he will raise again for his people to reign over all people and all things in all places for for all time, all for the good of His people. This is the Good Shepherd. The King. As verse 4 says, He shepherds His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, so that His people shall dwell secure. For now He shall be great to the ends of the earth. That day is coming. And all the way along, He will be their peace. So I must ask, is he your peace? Is he your hope? Is he your king? Is he your shepherd? You see, everybody has a king. Everybody has someone or something that's ruling their life. And everybody has a shepherd. Everybody has someone or something they go to for security in life. What is it for you? Who's your king? Your king, who's your shepherd? Is it Jesus? He says in John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But that meant he had to pay the price to provide that life. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. And as he is dying, his arms spread out. It's as if he is opening his arms to the world, inviting them in to come to him. As he said in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll be your peace. I'll be your hope. I will be your life. I am your king and your shepherd. Just come. Trust in me, believe on me, repent of your sins, and follow me. Have you? Will you? Is he your king and your shepherd? Because the Bible says in Acts 16, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done for you. So trust him, come to him, believe on him, and receive from him peace and hope and life everlasting. When you know Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then you can hang your eternal hope on him alone. Let me give you three reasons that's true. And here are the takeaways for today. Number one, you can hang your hope on him alone because Jesus came not only to save you, but to secure you forever. It's what he says in John 10, verses 27 and 28. My, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life. I give to them eternal life. It's something you have right here and right now. You have eternal life. You don't have to die to get eternal life. You possess it right now by his grace. And so you will never perish. 
No one will snatch you from his hand. No one, not ever. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can change that. Life that you've been given, nothing. And so you, listen, you are just as safe this morning as you will be when Jesus is visibly ruling and reigning to the ends of the earth. You say, I don't feel that. Here's what you need to remember. Here's what you need to know. There is not one square inch of turf in your life or on this globe over which our king does not presently reign. It's all his. He rules and he reigns. Now, I get that we don't see that today like we will when Jesus returns. But today, December 3rd, 2023, our King Jesus is ruling and reigning over it all for his glory and our good over all of it. We just got to believe it. You are forever safe in him. Because you are forever secured by him. So do not fear. Because secondly, Jesus came not only to bring you peace, but to be your peace forever. He isn't just the peacemaker between you and God. He's the peacekeeper. And if he can make peace and keep the peace between the infinitely holy God and inherently sinful people, then he can bring peace and be our peace on the street level of life. Can I just be open and honest with you for a moment here without everybody wondering what's going on, okay? Just this past week, there were two ministry bombs that were dropped in my lap. I lived through it, okay, in case you're wondering. But when that happens, my tendency is to respond by by getting all bent out of shape, by worrying and fearing and doubting and sometimes even despairing. And then I remember texts like Micah 5. That Jesus doesn't just bring me peace. He is my peace. That there's no chaos in my life that he can't overwhelm as my peace. No work issue, no financial issues, no ministry issue, no family issue. And so I've got to learn to be an Isaiah 26, 3 kind of person. And my prayer is that we as a church would be an Isaiah 26, verse 3 kind of church. Because he will keep us in perfect peace when our mind is stayed on him. Because we trust in him. There's no situation we face, no problem we encounter, no difficulty we endure that's beyond the reach of Jesus' peace because he came not only to bring us peace, and to, but to be our peace. And thirdly, thirdly, Jesus came not only to give us hope, but to be our hope forever. So here at the outset of the Christmas season, the Advent season, can I ask How is your hope? Where are you being tempted right now to give in to discouragement and doubt and despair? 
Is it in your parenting? You're ready. If you were honest, you'd say this morning, I'm ready to throw in the towel. Is it your marriage? As you look at your marriage, you see no way forward. Is it your health? It's failing, and it's failing fast. Wherever it is that you are losing hope, check yourself for signs that you're hanging your hope on something or someone other than God. Just ask yourself this, where do I go with my insecurities in the uncertainties of life? Do I look in the mirror and say, hey, hey, buck up, buddy. I'm enough for this, so let's do this because you've got this. Or do I lean on my past accomplishments? You know, I can handle what's coming. Just, just look at what I've done with my career. Look at how successful my kids are. Look how good my marriage is. Or do we, do we face our insecurities and fears by giving in to despair? We... We roll over and play dead and you shut down. What's your M.O. when crisis hits? Because whatever it is, that reveals where your hope is. Take your crises to Christ. Because the glory and the story of Christmas begins not with a birth, but with a promise of hope. That out of the chaos of a crisis in Bethlehem, one will come from Bethlehem to forever fortress us in his peace as our peace. So let's be a Psalm 42 kind of people. A people who preach the hope of Jesus to ourselves by asking ourselves what King David asked himself. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That's the story of Christmas. Jesus is the light of the world. He's our only hope.